chaos is everywhere. everybody this is Jonathan Gilchrist um, so this is the first episode of what's going to be a multi-part series that's going to be a series within a series um, it's going to be on the regular chaos server feed but it's going to be its own show that's going to come out on a different day than the regular stuff um, it's a watch along just like the other stuff we're doing but this one's going to be mostly solo um, with me and occasionally maybe uh, DJ Madman or Artie Vice will join me. It'll depend on their schedules. But what we're going to be doing is we're going to be watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, just starting at the first episode and working our way up until we've watched the whole series. And we'll see where we go from there. That's already a big commitment that's going to be many weeks. So I hope you're ready to go. Um, I decided to do this because, as you guys know from listening to the podcast which I'm going to try and come up with this this section having its own name. But listening to the other part of the podcast, I really liked wrestling growing up. But my dad told me when I was a kid, they um, didn't think I was going to walk because I was a preemie. And eventually I did walk and I started running around the house. And he said to me, the only thing that would stop me on the TV is either wrestling or Star Trek. So because I've got that kind of same deep relationship with Star Trek that I do of wrestling and because I do know a lot about Star Trek in general I thought well why not you know sit down and because I have the time put out more episodes of the podcast that will be just about Star Trek and I'm starting with Deep Space Nine because it's one of my favorite uh, Star Treks period like I like a lot of the other ones but Deep Space Nine really holds a special place in my heart um, so we're going to start on Netflix, because that's where I have access to it. Um, we're going to watch the two-parter beginning, uh, which is the Emissaries, parts one and two. The reason we're doing both parts is because they're together, they're not separate on the thing. So we're just going to hit play and then, you know, watch both episodes. Um, I think that's about it. I'm, I'll give you more stuff as we go through and I see stuff that, I remember, you know, triggers memories in my head. But if you're ready, uh, you want to zero up on Episode 1, Season 1, Emissaries Parts 1 and 2 on Netflix. And you're going to hit play in 3, 2, 1, play. Oh, and here's the crawl. For anybody that doesn't know this show, which you know might be some of you, uh, basically it's just talking about the fact that in the other series that predated this, Star Trek Next Generation, which I think overlapped it a little bit, um, Jean-Luc Picard became part of the Borg and led the Borg in an attack of the Federation. And now we're seeing, you know, Jean-Luc Picard as Lucutus talking to the Starfleet. So, I love this show because it's still the old school weaponry or the old school um, models. So it looks... Just better than I think a lot of the later stuff does when they relied on computer graphics before they were at their peak, which I'm sure computer graphics will look even better when we get a little bit older. 
And if you don't know, the um, well, we're seeing Captain Benjamin Sisko. We're going to get to know him better. Although I guess it's not a captain yet. He's a commander. Uh, interesting tidbit about him. Um, Avery, the uh, guy, his last name, the guy that played Sisko, had just done a show in the 90s. Um, it was like a cop drama show, I think. I don't know much about it, but I know that he had a shaved head and a goatee. And uh, the he really liked that look. He felt more comfortable with that look. But when they cast him for the show, they just didn't think America would like the look in some weird way. And so they made him grow out his hair like that and get rid of the goatee. And it took him like three, I think three or four seasons to convince the network to let him go to the goatee. And to be fair to his point of view, I don't know if it's just that he's more comfortable, but when he does change his look, it really does, for me, signal the real start of DS9 as, like, just awesome. I mean, we'll get, we'll get into it as the weeks and months go on, but, yeah, no, I just, those are the episodes that really stick with me. Actually, a pretty impressive effect there where we can see through the shattered bulkhead the uh, starship blowing up. It's a rather simple thing, but you, you, know, you just don't think about it. Uh. Uh. He's, it's just so good. He's, you know, I completely believe him in this moment, and... It's not an easy thing to find if you haven't been through it. The loss of somebody in a in this kind of way. I mean, I've had some stuff in my life, but I think you can get really into melodrama really quickly. And I don't think he ever really does that. Fun little side note that a lot of Trekkies would know that I don't think um, people outside of the Trek universe are aware of the computer voice for all the Federation in the next generation, Deep Space Nine. I don't know how far it goes, but at least for the three move three shows in the nineties, was the um, then wife of Gene Roddenberry, the creator of the show, who actually appears in the show as several as uh, at least one other character in the later shows, but appeared in the original Star Trek when he was when she was just his mistress when he was married to his first wife. So there's a lot of drama behind this very specific and very you know non-emotional voice that's on the computer we saw the Borg ship destroy the thing which that has to be a different level of suck because not only did he lose his wife but now he can't even give her a proper burial because her body was just vaporized with the ship and we're jumping ahead three years later we're going to, of course, find all this out, but if you don't know, Picard is saved by the crew of the Enterprise, brought back to being human, and we're, he's actually going to have a cameo in this as sort of a passing the torch of one commander to another, but not in the... Well, we'll see. I'm not going to... I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, because obviously I've watched this a few times in my life. Hmm. I love Bajor as a planet. I don't think it gets the recognition that, like, the Klingons get. Because, um... 
Bejor is, uh, it's just the way they set it up. It's like they talk about later how Bejor was doing interstellar space flight when we were in the middle of the Renaissance to give you an idea. So like a thousand years before humans even got to Bejor, they were already doing interstellar flight. So, just as a general background to what Deep Space Nine is conceptually, um, Star Trek was thought of as a wagon train show, like an old western where you'd go from planet to planet each, you know, each week, and that's what Next Generation and um, Next Generation and um, what am I thinking of? Oh, in the original. I don't know why that took me a minute. That's what they were based on, so they would go place to place. Deep Space Nine was taking a different formula where you, instead of being, like, on the move, we're in one spot. It's the town. You know, you've got the sheriff, you've got the mayor, It's but it's still got, a, if you look at the tropes, it's still drawing on westerns, it's just drawing a different type of western, which I find really fascinating and it does play out a lot like that uh, and I just oh man I love the song like this song if it if on the right day the theme song for the show can give me chills I know I'm a giant nerd I you know feel free to call me that all day but it just gets me and the model you know, it looks like, because it is, it looks like that there's that thing. It's an actual living, breathing thing that I'm looking at. It's not just something in a computer. I know, and you know, I don't want to be one of those old guys that are like, oh, better, but it's just, I don't know. For my taste, there is something different. And even though I can really enjoy newer stuff with all the computer animation, there's just something different in my brain about the real model and you know, what we get computer generated. I think that model sold for a crap ton of money. I'm actually, I'm sure it did. There was a huge auction a few years ago where they sold off all the original models, a lot of the props and stuff. And I watched on the history channel, especially they did where they talked about all this stuff and just absurd amount of money, just absurd amount of money going out because Trekkies will buy anything. Uh, there's the Enterprise. So what we're seeing right now, if you're not watching along, is um, he's explaining that they're setting up a a protectorate for Bajor. Bajor was under the control of the Cardassians, which is like their closest neighbor. And the Cardassians were just beaten by a resistance movement. And because Bajorans were just one system that had been, you know, under basic occupation for 50 years, they needed help. They needed some military strength to keep it for the Cardassians just from coming right back. So they asked the Federation to set up a base on Deep Space Nine just to protect the planet, basically. So that's where we're at right now. And if you don't know, Chief O'Brien there was also a member of the Enterprise. I think it's talked about in the episode, but he was a, kind of a side character 
he got stuck in a really big way to have like it started off he didn't even have a name and he gets all these lines and gets a whole arc and yeah it becomes one of my favorite characters of all time first introduction of the prophets who are the gods of Bajor I'm trying to give everything its proper meaning because I can go into all the details of what's going to be explained but we're watching it so I want to I want to get you guys too far ahead. That's interesting. I never noticed. He just said we can get him a real bunk off the Enterprise, but later on they're clearly sleeping on Cardassian beds, which, by the way, never look comfortable, even though they learned to grow, they learned to like them. So I wonder where they found the, the, um, the beds. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I'm going to try, but I can't, I can't help it. I've just grown to love Avery's portrayal, James Avery's portrayal of Cisco so much as I've grown older. It was very important to him to show, you know, especially in the mid-90s, he said this, it was very important for him to show a black man being a very loving and caring father. And he does it so well, it's just, uh, I mean, it, it's just so good. And there's episodes that come up later on, and there's one in particular that just every time I watch it, it has a lot to do with the father-son relationship that just makes me cry. And I'm sure that'll be fun to watch together as I'm bawling. You guys can just watch as this amazing acting is happening in front of you. I do love the different designs like if you watch star trek enough you get used to how every species has their own design aesthetic the the station's obviously cardassian so it looks like it does but it's completely different than what you'd see if you look at klingon or if you look at federation but it, it makes me it interests me mostly because the amount of effort they would have to go into coming up with a different aesthetic for each species to that point, if you if you um, watch the show, you're going to see a lot of Bajorans, but you're never going to get really a sense of what their aesthetic is, other than, you know, they're freedom fighters. So that's, you know, seedier pants stuff, but you never really get a sense of like, oh, this is what a Bajoran ship looks like. You'll see them, but they won't look unique enough to be like, oh, that's a Bajoran ship, not like a Cardassian ship or a bird of prey with uh, with the uh, cleanouts. So, interesting note about Kira Norris, who we're meeting for the first time here. She was never meant to be a character on the show. They originally wrote the show because on the Enterprise at the time, under Jean-Luc Picard, there was a Bajoran um, lieutenant that had been introduced, and she was on a lot of episodes. She had a very big arc. But basically, they wanted to bring that actress over, along with perhaps Miles O'Brien, and it would be her story going forward. 
I don't remember exactly what happened to fall through, but that actress did not come over so that they created the um, character of Kira Norris, and I can't imagine the show without Kira Norris, so, you know, thank goodness. And then we just got to see Odo, who is another character I love. Odo, of course, is the classic um, outsider character. So, just like Data or Spock, those characters that help us see humanity because they're outside of humanity. It is amazing to me for a pilot how many of these characters do continue on. I can't think of too many. They add people as they go on, but I can't think of too many characters that are just out and out disappear after the pilot. They have a pretty good idea. And if you watch enough TV, like I do, you realize that most pilots have at least one or two characters that just disappear. I wonder how much that first effect cost them. We just watched Odo get, um, Odo is the name of the security chief, if you don't know. We just watched him get hit with some sort of alien, I don't know, weapon, something thrown at his head. But because he's a shapeshifter, he could make his head liquid so the weapon just went right through it. But I wonder how much that effect had to have cost, especially for a pilot that nobody knew would be successful at the time. Well, Quark. So here's a little background about Quark, who's the bartender at Deep Space Nine, a Ferengi. He actually um, played the Ferengi. The, like he was one of the first Ferengi that we ever see in the Next Generation, early, early on, in the mid in the mid '80s. And the Ferengi were actually conceived by Roddenberry to be the big villain for the next generation. They were supposed to be what the Klingons and Romulans were for the original show. Um, but they they just never got off the ground. Like the first time you see Ferengi, they are kind of portrayed as pl uh, cavemen, and Quark was one of them. And it, just, it was not good. And then later on, they do come back, but they're never a military threat. They're sneaky, they're kind of sneaky, underhanded. Um, they're obsessed with money, which is not something you see very often in in um, in Star Trek. Most civilizations don't have money. The Ferengi do still have money, but they are, you know, but they're not a military threat. They very quickly become not a threat in that way to the Federation. And one of the things that uh, the actor, the play Quark, said was that he wanted Quark to be a better representation of Frankie because he felt so bad about that first episode because he felt like he had ruined um, Gene Roddenberry's idea for this new species with his performance. And I think he does a really good job. Quark's one of the best characters, good comic relief, and you know he's definitely one of the more memorable characters of all of DS9. So, sorry if I went off on the rails there for a minute. Now we're where... Commander Sisko is meeting uh, Captain McCard for the first time. Well, for the first time since his wife died, and he's obviously not happy about that. I have to admit, as a Star Trek nerd, it's, it hurts me to say this, but I've not seen the new 
Picard show yet. I will eventually get to it. I just don't have the ability to get CBS All Access or whatever it's going to become because I guess it's going to become something else soon. Yeah, they're just basically discussing what needs to happen to get the Bajorans into the Federation. Which, if you're not a fan, and I won't go into too much of what it is, but the Federation has a strict guideline for when people can be accepted. It can be bent a little bit, but you have to be a warp civilization, and you have to basically have figured out planetary peace. You have to, you can't be factionalist, which is one of the problems that the, um, the Bajorans have, is that now that they've lost their um, common enemy of the Cardassians, they've broken down to infighting with each other so that they don't, they're not really ready to join the Federation in many Federation's eyes. So. And, uh, Captain Sisko is just telling Picard that he doesn't want to stay there and he's going to go and do civilian service. I don't know if that really, like, I hope that if you're watching this with me, you've put on the subtitles or that you're at least, you've at least familiar have watched it before you watch with me. I mean, do whichever way you want it, but it's hard to explain how much this show shakes up what is Star Trek because you never really see Starfleet officers fighting with each other. And then we just watched... Commander Sisko very, very much get into Picard's face because he hates him for what he did to his wife or what he blames him for his wife dying. And just in a way that you do not see in the other shows. Like, even when there's an officer they don't agree with, they're, they're never very curt. They're always very polite with each other. But this show's going to be a lot darker and edgier, which was the idea from the very beginning. The guy, One of the guys that created the show was responsible for the Borg, which are one of the darker, more um, edgier species to be created in Star Trek that really, really pushed the envelope on a utopia idea. And this is his show, so he pushes it even further. The idea being, of course, that Earth is a, you know, a, it's a paradise. It's literally a paradise. Nothing is wrong on Earth. But we're not on Earth. We're we're about we're as far away from Earth as you can get, kind of, as far as the Federation's jurisdiction goes. And you know, he just and it's just these are people trying to survive in the fringes, where it's not so easy, not so perfect. Oh, so what we're watching now, if you're not watching along, is just that. Um, Nog was arrested earlier, which is Quark's nephew, the bartender I was talking about. And now Sisko is trying to convince him to stay because if Quark stays, other people will stay on the station because they're going to try and keep a community together. They want to keep the people that were there before and bring more people here. You know, they're just trying to make a community on the space station instead of letting everybody just abandon it. So one of the ways Sisko sees to do that is to blackmail Quark into basically 
keeping his business because other people stay if they see Quark staying. Which, I mean, I guess it makes sense because Quark's the kind of person that if he's running, it's a good time to run because he knows when there's danger afoot. It's really interesting in this first episode to see how the makeup is going to evolve. I don't know how to explain it if you're not watching it or if you're not familiar, but um, everybody's face kind of shifts, especially the aliens a little bit because it just, it just does. And I'm just fascinated by it. Pick up random piece of metal. We're learning a little bit more about Kira, talking about how um, how life was in the refugee camps. I don't know how to really explain, like, they get into it, and you'll know. But you have to understand that when I say Bajor was under occupation, imagine the worst stuff you heard in World War II, but it's the entire planet, and it's for 50 years. And then that's something close to what they were dealing with. And the only thing that kept them together was a religious belief in who they call the prophets. And we're going to learn more about the prophets as we go, but that's what kept you know, that's what kept them going. That's what they're talking about right now on the screen, if you're not watching this. They're just talking about how their religion helped bring the factions together. Which, again, is actually another... I just realized it's another very interesting thing that's not in most Star Treks. Um, the Federation respects religion, but you don't see too many species with a religion as their core thing. It's sort of like... It's not that they don't have it. I don't think Gene Roddenberry ever said that people in the future aren't religious. I think it's just implied that they've gotten to a place where that's your private business and it does not affect in any way what how other people look at you. It doesn't affect how you do your job. It doesn't affect it doesn't affect the society, if that makes sense. It's your personal business. And you can do whatever you like in that arena. But with the Bajorans, it's more very much about that's part of their identity, which is just not how it usually goes with other species, or hasn't up until this point. Sort of like how the Frangis and money are the same way. Oh, and um, so the, I guess, priest on the space station earlier had talked to um, Benjamin Sisko about going to see or seek the prophets in the temple, and he just came back in that conversation with Kieran Reese and... I guess told them to go see their spiritual leader, who's called the Kai. Her name's Opaka. And now he's on Bajor meeting with her. And this is, this is the crux of basically the whole series. This is the thing that kind of bookends everything. I, they don't ever explain, I wonder how they came to the idea, but the ear of a Bajoran has a lot to do with their religion. Like the way that they figure out, 
you know, your destiny is they hold your ear very tightly, your earlobe. And it's supposed to show your pa, which I guess is your spirit, your soul. But I wonder how, like, like if you watch the show and you get used to the species, you're like, okay, that's just, that. that's how it's done. Fine. But thinking about it as someone that's watching a TV show, how do you make that decision? Like, when does the idea of, yeah, the ears, that'll be the thing. Because I think the earring was a part of Next Generation, but it wasn't obviously flushed out because the main character wasn't, like, we weren't dealing with Bejor every week. So I wonder, like, I just, I'm just curious. And it doesn't really help the viewing, so I'll, I'll let it go. It's just an interesting thought of, where does that come from? And it's one of those thoughts that if I asked the writer of the show, they'd be like, what the hell is wrong with you? We, we just, we had an earring, so we decided, fuck it. Um, so Benjamin just went down into a, a cave that was hidden and has been shown what we we come to know as an orb. It's kind of this glowing thing in a box, which I'm sure was all computer animated at the time, so probably just looked like a box. And the orb just released some sort of energy and transported him, well, somewhere else because his clothes are different. He's on a beach holding drinks, so... I like this episode a lot um, because it very much is in line with the rest of the series. The interesting thing about the first season of Deep Space Nine is, to me, it most of the other episodes of this season feel like a kind of continuation of Next Generation. They just feel like they more have that sensibility. And if you watch the whole series, you'll see what I mean about a different sensibility compared to the Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. But this episode, the, the pilot, very much feels in line with what Deep Space Nine is going to become. So it's kind of interesting that the pilot feels like this. It feels very much in line. But then I swear to you, there's times when I rewatch DS9 and I skip the entire first season after the uh, first episode because you don't need it for any of the shows. It's not part of the bigger story that's going to be told. It's just, it's it just is, and they're not bad episodes. They're just not episodes that are. If I'm watching for speed's sake, I'm watching to watch the main story. I'll just skip over it because most of those episodes do not inform the main story that much. Excuse me, there. Whew. Oh, so the orb transported him back to the first day that he met his wife on a beach. That's where we just found out, and they just had a conversation where he's like, oh my god, I can't believe it's you, you were dead. So, I mean, I'm being glib about it, but yeah, no, it's, it's a nice scene. I don't know, I... It's one of those things, because I've lost people that are very important to me, and the idea to be able to go back and to talk to them again, of course I would do it, but the, the idea of then having to step away from that and losing them feels somehow worse. I don't know. That's a philosophical thought, sorry. I'm, I'm getting too much into my own head with uh, stuff that's about my own life, which I wouldn't mind sharing with you guys. I just don't think it makes good podcast. I do enjoy uh, the costume design. Like, 
she's in a bikini because why not put this beautiful woman in a bikini it's very much just you know of the time of now of you know 1990 bikini it doesn't look that different but he's in a weird multicolored kind of um it kind of reminds me of the suits you see in like the 1920s that guys would wear you know but it's just, it's much more colorful than the ones you would see. It's just an interesting juxtaposition because, yeah, let's put the girl in a bikini. Oh, we'll put him in something that looks kind of sort of futuristic y, but not really. Now we just saw the orb appear and it's bringing him back to the cave. So. Well, she's explaining what the orbs are. But basically the orbs, they believe, come from their, their gods, which if they can transport you bodily back in time, why the hell wouldn't you think that? I have to admit the Bajorans have a lot more to do with, um, a lot more evidence than most religions. But, yeah... She just said that all the other orbs were stolen by the Cardassians. And this is the last one they have. The orbs are supposed to have different powers. Like there's an orb of time. There's an orb of prophecy. There's a few others. I don't, like, it's more of a, I think it's more of a thing. Whatever the episode needs, that's the orb that they encounter kind of thing. Where it's not like they purposefully don't make sense or... You know, or just being lazy, but it is sort of like, we know that there's nine of them, so why don't we write an episode where the orb of time gets involved and they go back in time, and so on and so forth. I think at the last one that they find, they find another orb on Earth called the Emissaries, or Orb, Tenth Orb. But that's, that's seasons and seasons away. I think for people, I'm going to keep coming back to this whenever he gives me a great reason to, I think people just think that, you know, Star Trek is, you know, lasers, but there's such good emotional grounding in a lot of it. Some of the newer stuff can stumble, you know, even some of the older stuff can, but it's just, some of it's just so fucking good. <laughs> like, when it's good, it's the best it could be. And um, if you're not watching along, we just uh, we just see uh, Quark's bar is open and it's busy and everybody's inside and having a good time. So obviously it's working. Cisco's plan is working. I wish I could could have could have gone. If you don't know, in Las Vegas for years there was something called Star Trek: The Experience, where basically you could go. And it was like a whole interactive thing where you can go on the bridge of the Enterprise. But you could also go to Quark's Bar and get a drink. I really wish I could have gone to that. I never got a chance to before they closed it. It was open for like 10 years. I just never got a chance to go. Because I was a little child at that time. Yeah. 
feel like that's actually pretty good um, advice for everybody. Don't trust ale from a God-fearing people. I actually don't know when the cutoff point is for this. I mean, it's got to be getting close to what would be the end of the last episode, but it's been so long since I've actually seen this in regular televised order that I wanted to myself, when did the, um, when did the cutoff happen? Like, when did we go from part one to part two? I'm guessing it's got to be when the Enterprise leaves. That actually makes the most sense. Oh, we just met two new main characters, um, Jadzia Dax and uh, our medical officer, Julian Bashir. Dax is a very interesting species. She's a, um, a trill, which are a joined species, which basically means that there's a symbiotic other being that lives inside of her that has the memories of all the other... Um, members of her race has lived inside that it's lived inside of and she's and it's one of I guess one of the oldest ones they don't really say but I think you get the impression from how everybody talks that it's like nine lifetimes is a very big feat for one of these symbiotes oh god I love Julian we find out so much more about Julian but in the beginning, he's just such a, he's such a pompous jerk. And he plays it so well. <laughs> he's a very, like, you can always tell he means well, but he's a very unlikable character. And for the first couple of seasons, you don't like him. Or at least you're not meant to, I don't think. So yeah, um, Cisco's asking Dax to uh, look at the orb. This is a very interesting relationship from behind the scenes because the the woman that's playing Dax, this is like one of her first big acting gets, and here's James Avery who's very intense, but it's such a weird. <laughs> dynamic because their characters are that she's not just a 28 year old girl the previous host was Benjamin's um, mentor and that's how they interact a lot of the time even though she's a 28 year old girl she's his mentor known him his whole life basically saw him as a kid but he's also her commander it leads you know it's just a very interesting dynamic that, you know, I don't know if they ever mind it to my full satisfaction. And she's just having an orb experience where she's going back to when she got the symbiote, because basically the way the symbiote works is when one of the trills are dying that have a symbiote, like when they're old or they're injured, to save the symbiote, basically they pick a time and they take the symbiote out of the 
the ho the one host, thereby, by the way, killing the person that had it. The, you can't survive without the symbiote once you've been joined for more than like 36 hours. Um, and then they put it into a new host. So she just went back to the moment where she got the symbiote. It's in a very, actually I just realized it's a very Doctor Who kind of character because you're basically playing a character that is its own unique thing but it's got nine lifetimes experience. The difference between her and Doctor Who is simply that the audience doesn't, besides what we get from stories about Curzan and the others, the audience doesn't have an expectation of what those other characters were. So I think this is sort of like a, a step down from Who in that you, you know, in what you have to do, but it's the same basic idea of trying to fit 328 years of confidence into a 28-year-old body. Yes, random yellow shirt person that we've never seen before, and it's probably just somebody that grabbed up the crew and put a uniform on because all they have is Picard. This is the D-shift. That's why we don't see Worf or anybody else up there, anybody we recognize on the Enterprise. Uh, I love Chief O'Brien. If you don't know about Chief O'Brien, he went from a guy that was on Star Trek that didn't even get a name when he was first on. He was just a random crew member, and they kept bringing him back until he became the chief teleport officer. Where <laughs> it's also funny that, like, he this the ship is so large, they literally have a uh, room for just you're the best at teleporting, that's all your job is. You maintain the teleporter and you teleport. Now, we're going to find out that he's just as good an engineer as anybody throughout the whole show, but that's not how he looks when you watch the next generation. It's only later that we could see all his talents, but he does become one of my favorite characters of all Star Trek, and I think a lot of people's. And it's a nice moment for the um the fans that Picard transports him, sort of like, you know, final bookend to his time on the Enterprise. Of course, at this point, the Enterprise is basically done. I don't think... See, I was so young when this was on. I don't know if the first season of DS9 ran concurrently with the first season of... or the final season of Next Generation. I'm guessing that's not how it worked, but I honestly don't know. I should probably look that up at some point as we go along. But I do know that after 93, which is the first season... Basically, this is the only Star Trek show until Voyager comes along, and then Voyager ends up in a completely different part of the galaxy, so they're not really competing for storylines that much. God. And we're meeting Gal Dukat, who is my second favorite Cardassian. I don't think my favorite Cardassian is actually on the first episode, so we'll just have to deal with Dukat. Oh, I love Dukat so much. 
he's such a he's such a good villain. The the things that I'm trying I'm holding back of me wanting to talk about how he's going to evolve and oh, it's so good. But for right now, for those of you who aren't were, aren't aren't familiar with the show and aren't watching, Gul Dukat was the commander of the space station, and I think I'm pretty sure. Hopefully, I'm not getting my facts wrong, but. I think he was the overall commander of the entire occupation of Bajor when the Bajorans won and kicked the Cardassians out. And Deep Space Nine was his um, headquarters. And the office that Benjamin Sisko is in was his office. And they're having a conversation about, you know, now that the Federation has left, um, feel free, if you have any problems, we'll be right there to help you in a very obviously threatening way. I want to see the species that just takes the Cardassians completely at face value because they're so good at fucking double talk. He just said that maybe we could have a change of resources and exchange information because we heard you brought back an orb like three hours ago. Which I want, I like, we're supposed to understand they obviously have a very good intelligence, but I really do want to know who the hell... Like, was it somebody at the monastery that knew that he had the orb? Was it, like, somebody at Quark's that saw him bring back the box or something? I'm just... I'm curious the logistics of where a Kardashian spy was. Sorry, we're, we're now in the science lab where they're talking about a particularly dangerous part of space call around Bajor called the Denorius Belt because they're looking for information. So, I don't know if I explained this, but hopefully if you're watching along, you've got it. But if you haven't, basically what happened, what's happened so far that's important to the story is Cisco went down to the planet. The Kai fig, figured out by looking at his paw, whatever that means, that he was supposed to be the emissary of the prophets. Basically, he's supposed to go find where the prophets actually are. That's why she gave him the orb to study, because the orb would help him figure it out. And um, Dax just came up with, there's this one spot where there's all this different recorded information about the, the celestial temple in the Denorius belt. So, there we are. And now they're going to go look in the Denorius belt. And we're just seeing a bunch of Klingons, or I'm sorry, Cardassians at Quark from uh, Gal Dukat's ship. Just having a grand old time. Because the Federation can't, because nominally they're not at war, and the Federation doesn't really run the space station. And there's a peace, quote unquote, with the Bajorans. So they can't say, hey, Cardassians, get the hell off the station. Even though they really want to. But um, here I just walked in the bar and basically said something to the effect of, um, gentlemen, you gotta, you gotta leave. 
and Quark is giving them a bag to put all their winnings in because they had a good day where they won a lot of gold press platinum. That's an interesting thing that we can get into, which is kind of throwaway later on. Gold press latinum is the currency of the Ferengi. It's not the gold that makes it valuable. Gold is actually pretty much worthless. From what I've gathered, um, gold actually is a rather abundant material throughout most of the Federation planets. So most places don't use gold as a currency like we did. Um, they just don't. It's just too abundant, so it's not valuable. But what the, somebody did, a Ferengi or somebody, figured out was you could take this liquid metal, latinum, which kind of looks like mercury when you see it in its liquid state. But, but that's valuable. That can be used as currency by many species, including the Ferengi. And you basically hollow out gold and put the latinum inside. So the gold only has value with how much latinum's inside of it. So, I don't know, very interesting way to... I think Gene Roddenberry constantly did that, where gold just became useless. Like, gold's in their communicators. Nobody gives a rat's ass about gold. Even species that care about money don't care about gold, which I, I appreciate about them. They never talk about silver, though. Silver might be really valuable, who knows, but gold is not not valuable at all. Oh, now we're watching Dax and um, Cisco take a runabout, which is a small one-man shuttle, well, two-man shuttle, whatever. It's the, basically the runabout's there for the first few seasons, their main mode of transportation when they have to leave the space station for something. But they're going to take it and look for the orb. But part of the whole plot that I kind of talked over with my gold press platinum thing was that Odo, the shapeshifter, had become the bag to carry the gold press platinum so he can get on the Cardassian ship and knock out their sensors so the Captain Sisko get away without the Cardassians seeing them to go check out the Norris belt. At the moment, honestly, at the moment, it doesn't, like, besides the fact that the Bajorans don't want their enemies, the Cardassians, to, um, to get to their, their holy temple, there's not a real reason why the Cardassians are so interested, other than the weird powers the orbs have, I guess. But, I mean, it becomes later on there's a very good reason, but we don't know that at the moment, so it's kind of interesting that they're so gung-ho about it. I don't know what exactly they expect to gain, except for maybe humiliating the Bajorans, who just beat them after 50 years of occupation, which I'm sure they did not appreciate. There's not much to talk about right now. They're just basically flying to that spot in the Denorius belt. And they're getting some weird readings. And actually what just happened was a wormhole opened up and swallowed their ship. It's a very cool visual. And if you've never watched before, I can imagine it's very kind of breathtaking because it's really pretty to look at. 
But what we just found out is they disappeared from the uh, sensors of DS9. <laughs> and they just came out of a similar wormhole. So they just found out that they are in a different quadrant of the galaxy. There are, there are, if you're really interested, you can look up and see like how they break it down. But basically, they are in the Alpha Quadrant. That's where Earth is. That's where every major species is. If you go into, I think, I think the Federation, they never say it, but I think the Federation has to like encompass the Beta and the Alpha, but um, there's also a Delta Quadrant and a Gamma Quadrant. I think they just said there's something like 70,000 light years away from Earth, and they just, you know, in five minutes got to go 75,000 light years away from Earth. So, oh, if you're not watching along, they're inside a wormhole. They're back inside the wormhole. They turn around and we're going home. And they've just been, without meaning to, slowed down. And then they just were stopped and made to land inside the wormhole. So, and now they're on this planet, which didn't exist inside the wormhole the first time they went through, but now is there. This is an interesting aesthetic choice to me. I don't know if it's supposed to represent the person that's seeing it, but when Cisco steps out on the planet, it's a lot of sharp rocks and like wind and lightning. And when Dax steps out on the planet, it's like a beautiful garden with flowers and a lawn and trees. I really don't know. I don't know if the, they never really explain what the difference is and why they're seeing it. But my guess is that it has to do with the person looking. All right, so this um, app just told me that I'm getting towards the end of my thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit pause at the show where I'm at now, and then I'll set up a new segment, and we'll just have to sync back up. I'm sorry about this. I thought it was like a two-hour thing, so I thought we'd have plenty of time, but barely not. All right, so I'm stopping, and then I'll be right back with you. So this will be a small break, nothing really for you, and then we'll do a countdown. Okay, I'm sorry about the interruption. Like I was telling you guys, um, when I originally recorded the episode for like the pay-per-view, the longer episodes, we had two hours, and for some reason the app just said I had an hour, did not know it until it told me. 
All right, so we're going to get sunk back up. I'm at 53 minutes and 8 seconds um, on the episode. So once you're sunk up to that, you're just going to hit 3, 2, 1, and we're going to hit play. All righty. And for me, it's been about a day. I actually decided to record this the next day just because I was getting tired. But we're still on the planet in the middle of the, what's it called, the wormhole. And an orb-like thing just showed up and basically threw both Jadzia and Cisco down on the ground. So there we go. <laughs> now this kind of um, goes against my theory because I remember I said my theory was it depended on who was looking at why the planet looked the way it did. But just then I think Jadzia started to see the planet as Cisco saw it after she was attacked. I don't know. Maybe it's just their expectations of what they're going to find there that makes the difference. But anyway, Chad Z was just taken away by the orb, and the planet he's on, uh, Cisco's still on, is now breaking up into pure white light. So, that's what's happening. Eh. Not much more to say about it. We're, we're watching him sink into light. He's probably going to die, because obviously it's not like he's the main character of the series. It's going to go another, you know, seven seasons. That would have probably been a commercial break on regular TV. Um, and we're watching the orb go back to Deep Space Nine. And, you know, they're just like, what the hell's just coming out of that weird thing? It's not a ship. Alright, so, you know, I hope you guys are watching along. But yeah, basically that's where we're at with everything. <coughs> um, I'm just trying to think of what's interesting. Well... Mm. Yeah. It's one of those things where there's not a lot to talk about what's going on on the screen, just because we're basically, you know, setting up where we're at. We're about to get to some more interesting stuff, but we just had to set up the Jet Z is back on the state base station and Benjamin's still in the wormhole. Oh, they, I don't think I explained this, but the reason that this is such a big deal that they found a wormhole that goes 70,000 light years, even though that makes it obvious, <laughs> is that they say that they've never found a stable wormhole ever. And it's true. That in all their lore, you don't ever hear of a stable wormhole. Uh. <clears throat> all right. Okay, so... The way that the prophets communicate, you never really see the prophets because they don't have a physical form. They take the form of people in Benjamin's mind to talk to him. And depending on what they are expressing, if they're like aggressive or if they're curious, they take the form of somebody that represents that as mind. So like when they're asking a question, they turn into his child. So that's just what we're watching. He's starting to talk about trying to talk to the prophets, trying to explain, because this is basically, this is the Starfleet gig right here. They've met a new species. Time to start dialogue. But the interesting thing about this species is that they don't have any concept of time. They're, they're mortal. They're pretty close to what you would say would be a philosophical idea of God, um, except for perhaps they're not all powerful. But I don't, actually, I guess we never see if they're I guess we never see if there's a limit, but the um, philosophical God is some is a being that's all-powerful, all-knowing, 
can basically do anything that is possible. And I have a feeling that they're just step below that. They're basically, and we're going to get into him later, they're basically like a more, um, at least neutral version of the Q, who are also a very godlike species in Star Trek. And he do, and the Q do make a appearance in this, um, in this show. He's not as big a part as they are of Next Generation, but they're still here. So here, this is an interesting, like, side plot, kind of. But basically, the space station, because what it was, when it was under Cardassian control, was a space station to mine, like, and refine ore. Like, they would transport ore from the planet's surface up to the space station. It would be refined, and that's part of how the Cardassians, like, made money. Well, or, you know, got resources out of Bajor. So it's circling Bajor right now, but they're talking about, well, we have to get the space station in front of the mouth of the wormhole to claim it for Bajor and to claim it for the, well, mostly to claim it for Bajor because I constantly want to say for the Federation, but they make it very clear that the space station is Bajoran. It's just, it's kind of run by Federation, you know, help. It's a, it's, it goes into a lot of what the series is about, that relationship. So I won't go too deep into it, but yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I guess that they're also going to go look for their Captain Sisko's ship while they try to figure out how to get the space station there, and Odo's going to go with them, and we're going to find a little bit more about him. Odo is um, a shapeshifter. And we're going to see a lot more of his backstory, but he's the only known member of his species. And I guess there's a, um, I don't know if it's a fan theory or if it's like it was, um, confirmed, but there's a very specific episode of Next Generation where Picard finds out, and this is kind of the way that they explain why all species sort of look alike that there was a single species that before anything else developed basically in this part of the galaxy, they went around and they seeded different worlds. So they seeded the Klingon world and they seeded the Cardassians, they seeded the Romulans, they seeded Earth, and they seeded with their DNA and the DNA evolved differently. But that's why everything kind of looks the same, but isn't the same. And the species that you see the message in that episode about is... Um, is looks very much like Odo and later on I like I said I've heard that that is supposed to be Odo's species but I don't know it's never discussed here I don't know if it's just a fan theory it's an interesting theory of anything if uh, especially when we figure out who Odo's species is but it's never really mentioned outside that episode it's kind of a big deal and it's never it has no bearing on anything after that episode even though it's kind of huge for the whole Star Trek universe it's just like they completely ignore it. I guess maybe that makes sense because if you have all these different cultures who have their own beliefs about where they came from, if they all found out that it wasn't true, probably wouldn't be very quick to adopt the truth, even if there was proof, you know. So, yeah, Cisco is now in the wormhole trying to explain how humans are not a threat to the prophets, how they just want peace, and trying to also explain how their existence is linear. 
you know, how they, you know, how we basically, you know, we live in the, we are born and we move forward into our life and time. And then we can't go back to the past and we live in the moment and we think about the future, but we don't know what the future is. I know you all know what living your time is, but imagine trying to explain this concept to somebody that doesn't know what it is. And they find a kind of interesting way to explain it eventually, but we're not quite there yet. I wonder how long it took to like shoot all these. I guess they have to, like they, I guess you, they have to be non sequiturs because he's having an ongoing conversation with the prophets, but we're seeing different scenes. Like in one part, he's talking to uh, Jake on the dock that we were saw him in earlier in the episode. And then I've seen he's talking to Jennifer on the beach. So they must have just shot the non sequitur partial parts of the conversation and then just put them together. I think, I don't know, it'd just be hard for me to be like, okay, this is where I am in the conversation. I have to make it seem like I'm just naturally continuing for when, where I just left off, even though maybe I haven't shot that part yet. Whatever. I'm sorry, I'm getting too deep into it. I just, I just realized that that would be kind of difficult, I think, for me anyway. That's not how my brain is wired. So, um, while Kira, the doctor, and Odo are trying to take a ship to, I believe, go to the wormhole because they can get there faster than this giant space station, O'Brien is having to do some weird engineering tricks to move the space station to the mouth of the wormhole. It, it's a trip that, because they only have thrusters, because it's not meant to really move the space station, um, it would take him like three days, but basically he create the whole science is he creates a field that like lowers the gravity of the space station so it's lighter, so it can be pushed much faster than it should be. I don't even know if any of that's true. Most of the time, Star Trek is very um, was very aware of their uh, science. They don't usually make a lot of big mistakes. Like they can make stuff up, and there's a lot of jokes about like the the Heisenberg compensator and transporters. But um, they don't they don't genuinely just make up science. They try to stay as close as they can to real science as they have the ability to do. And maybe we'll get into Heisenberg compensator some other time. It's That is a running joke. If you're any kind of Trekkie, you should know exactly what a Heisenberg compensator is and why it's funny. And now we're just with the runabout that's going to look for the last place that they saw Cisco. It's kind of a, a race to the wormhole. Cardassians are racing to it, and so are the... Um, the good guys. Interesting side note about Gal Dukat and Kira Norris. That was the one relationship that she didn't, that the actress that played Kira did not want for her character was to be in a relationship with Gal Dukat. But as you're going to see, they definitely tease it for quite a while, and it's a big part of both of their character development, their relationship, such as it is. I 
I mean, I guess they just they just explained something that I was a little bit confused about earlier. That basically they consider the orbs technology, so the, they're not worried about trying to get to the gamma quadrants because they have no idea about that. They want to control the um, where the prophets are because they want access to the technology that allows them to create the orbs, which makes you know perfect sense. Now we're back into the wormhole and Captain Sisko is again talking to Jennifer and they're reliving the moment when um, basically Sisko proposed having a child. I don't really... Like, because I know the metaphor that they're going to eventually land on that teaches them this. I wonder if I could be any more successful trying to explain linear time without any frame of reference. It would be very difficult, I think. Because could you just try to put yourself in that headspace where tomorrow isn't just, like, you're not just kind of sure. Like, it's the exact same thing as remembering what happened yesterday. It's enough to make your head spin when you really think about it. This is something that's not really, it, it's touched on, but they don't really get into it because I think it'd be very difficult to really write this. But it's implied that all these species, like the prophets and the Q, um, who are godlike in this way, were once um, beings with physical forms that somehow evolved to this point. And I just, it's such an interesting idea. Because, like, the prophets, they obviously, because they don't know what linear time is, even though that the, the past is the same as the future, they don't uh, have a concept uh. of, you know, like, what their past was. They don't remember being linear. They don't remember being physical, really. You know, they remember that they, I think, came from Bajor. But they don't remember what that was like until Cisco shows up and sort of helps them understand. So you gotta be gotta think it must be like millennia upon millennia where they've just forgotten. And I think I, I the way I look at Star Trek species there's a hierarchy and like you start with humans and people on that level, Klingons, basically most of the species, Cardassians. Um, up above them are species like um, Whoopi Goldberg's character and Odo's people. I won't get into too much detail, but basically something about them. They're long-lived. They just have a higher understanding of the universe in general. And then above them are the godlike species. And I just like there's multiple layers, and there's multiple examples in each layer of the species I'm talking about. It's just, it's a very rich backstory, but I mean, it's been like 60 years worth of writing to get to this point. So, of course, there's a lot of backstory to everything. Uh, so they, um, 
they just were showing the scene where Jennifer died and he asked, why did you bring, bring me here? And they said, we didn't bring you here. You exist here. But before they could get into it any more deeply, the, the Cardassians going through the wormhole sort of um, screwed things up. And they got through the wormhole, but then the wormhole just collapsed on itself. So that's, yeah, just keep you up to date what's going on on the screen if you're not watching along. But a lot of this I think would be better to be watching along because I could describe what's going on, but, you know, it's not as good podcasting. I think it's better to be watching with me and then I, I can just throw in the, you know, two cents of weird random background information that I happen to know or whatever random thought might pop into my head. Yeah, right now they're basically saying that linear people have no concept of consequences for their actions because well of course why would we we don't know what's going to happen we claim we don't so we don't ever think about our actions we you know, which is very true. We don't have any way to fix that. Basically, they're, he's using the birth of his son to explain to explain, you know, how how they um, don't know what's going to happen when they have a kid, but they you know use their experience to try and understand it. But now I think we're finally getting to the metaphor that explains what linear time is, and the metaphor is baseball, which becomes a very big part of it because baseball has basically died out in the 24th century, but Benjamin Sisko still loves it. And um, But he's going to use it to explain linear time because basically if you play baseball, he throws the ball. He doesn't know what's going to happen every time he throws the ball. The hitter could miss, the hitter could hit it, like a you know, bunch of different things could happen, but he won't know until he does it. And that's how he explains linear time, which is, you know, a really cool way to do it. And just from a writing TV perspective, it's like, oh, that's a nice way to get out of that hole because that could, that could really suck in and never let you out if you're not worried about or if you're not careful. But no, they got it pretty good. I love the, and I also love the, the balls, I guess is the best way to put it, of a writing team that's like, okay, for our first episode, we're going to set up these godlike creatures that have no concept of what linear time is and then we're going to find a way to explain to them in dialogue what that is like in our first episode we're not going to like ease into it we're just going to start that's where we're starting or i guess technically this is the second episode but it's part two of the first episode So now that we've finally got a concept of what linear time is and the prophets seem to understand what they are talking about, 
We're going to get into something a little bit more personal for Cisco. Because what they do is after they learn that, they're like, why, why do you exist here? And they bring him back to when Jennifer died. Of course, the, like, you know, you get the idea is like, if something that horrible happens, we don't ever really leave it, even though we do, you know? And of course, we all understand that as human beings that are living our lives. Which again, leads to another interesting idea is like, people... Meh. I'll let the philosophy go for now because we're finally getting some more action. Dukat just showed up with three new ships to. Well, not Dukat. The um, Cardassian showed up with three new ships asking where the hell's our other ship? And how do you explain? Oh, yeah, it just disappeared. The Cardassian ships, if you um, ever take a look at them, because this is their main ship design here. Um, you, I think you might see shuttles every once in a while, but this is their main ship design. I guess it was supposed to be Egyptian in design. Like if you look at it, you can see little pyramids and stuff on it. And that's where the... Because uh, I think Cardassians were completely made up for next generation. That's where the... Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. gonna bug me because it's such a simple word and it, I lost it but that's that's where the um, design came from was ancient Egypt uh, you ever you ever forget a word and then it hurts your head because you've forgotten it and I have to move on because I'm I want to keep watching the show with you guys that's bugging the crap out of me So the Cardassians have basically given them an ultimato. Either give up the space station or we will destroy it because you destroyed our ship. And they have one hour to do it. And that puts them in a hell of a place because as you've probably noticed by the time you get to this point, the space station's not fully operational. They don't have full weapons or really anything. Because the Kardashians trashed the place before they leave, which makes sense. It's what an army would do. They took everything of value and trashed it. And Chief O'Brien is trying to put it together, but it's going to take him several months to put it together all the way. So this is something that um, it's sort of hinted at in Next Generation, and it does get talked a lot about a lot about here, but you never really see it. There's already been a war between the Cardassians and the Federation, and it was a particular nasty war that I don't think, I mean, for Trekkies that are into this show in particular, you know about it, but it doesn't get its like place in the 
pantheon. You think of the Klingons as the enemies, but mass stuff happened with the Cardassians. Stuff that's very much not like, you know, evolved. All right, now we're back into the wormhole. And the prophets are again just like, wait, you exist here. And yeah, I mean, so this is a very personal growth moment because you do. You, you never leave these moments in your life, really, do you? You know, there is one thing about this that's weird. Later on, there's a lot of different implications of how Cisco becomes the emissary. It's not random at all. And I don't know. It, we'll we'll talk about it more. It's just it's weird to me, looking back from what I know. Yeah. Again, some really great um, acting from Avery Brooks. Which, by the way, since I recorded the first part of this, I found out that it's been it's um, Avery's birthday, and I figured out his name is Avery Brooks, and I was calling him something else. Sorry about that. I, was, I got the Avery part right, but it's Avery Brooks, and he just had a birthday, so happy birthday to him. He's apparently a very intense guy on set. Like, I'm assuming this is one of those moments because he's really going for it. But there, there are scenes later on where they talk, like the other actors talk about being blown away by his commitment, like he'd be writhing on the floor because he was just that into the moment that he was acting. And I feel like, I don't know, I don't think he gets the same level of like recognition as like a, uh, Patrick Stewart does, even from Trekkie fans. I think they appreciate him. I just don't think that they really, I don't hear enough people talking about how great he is as an actor. So yeah, basically we're just seeing that the prophets understand what he was talking about. They understand what linear is now, and they also understand why he um, is stuck in that moment, even though he can't go back. I think they understand his whole concept at this point, and I can imagine it wouldn't be very pleasant to get there, but they got there. <sighs> this is a very cool plan that they come up with on the station to bluff the um, Cardassians. So if you're not watching along, what they um, do is that they fire all the six photon torpedoes that they have at the Cardassians as warning shots. And then the Cardassians come on screen like, what the hell is that your answer? And what they've done is they basically um, trick them. Uh, they've made it so when they use their sensors to look at the space station, they're going to see 
a crap ton of torpedoes, you know, fully functioning phaser banks, all that other stuff. It's going to make the space station look way too defendable uh, for three ships to take. I'm, I think her last name is Vis Visitor, maybe? The, the woman that plays Kira is just so fucking intense. <laughs> I think she very much got her character very early on. Yeah, if you look at those models, like just give it a good look, the models of the Cardassian ships, you can really do see the pyramids and stuff that looks like ancient Egypt. Egyptian. Yeah. And the Cardassians are basically, you know, pro-conning, attacking the thing. Because if they wait too long, Starfleet shows up and they don't want a war with Starfleet at the moment. And we've watched, they've, um, they did call for reinforcements, assuming that the could be real, but the Cardassians have decided to attack the station. And again, they have no weapons, so this is... They use those pictures a lot. Um, like, because they'll just reuse stuff. So we just watched the get a direct hit to the space station and shit's blowing up on the promenade. But I think they use the um, damage part of, like, the outside a few other times when the space station's being attacked. Which makes sense. You don't want to, you know, if you got the shot, use it again. Uh, sorry, I was laughing because Chief O'Brien just said, I'm going to have to turn down the main power supply or the whole promenade's going to blow up. <laughs> you know, he, he's just like, I just got the damn thing fixed.
Yeah, it's starting to look really desperate for the the space station. They're about to surrender. And just because it's TV and it's always so perfect because, well, you're writing stories, so of course it's going to be perfect. Here comes Cisco through the wormhole. By the way, they do tell the Cardassians, I don't know if I mentioned this, they do tell the Cardassians that the ship that they're looking for went through a wormhole, but the prophets had collapsed the wormhole, so they had no, you know, they couldn't see it because it wasn't there anymore. And Cisco's coming back. It's just really funny. Cisco coming back through towing behind him the, uh, the Cardassian ship. Everybody's happy. So yeah, we're basically getting towards the end of the episode. I don't think there's too much more that I'll have to explain. So yeah, it really sets up the series. And like I said, the interesting thing about this for me, for this episode, after this episode, we don't really get into the profits too much more. What we're going to find out is that the um, that Cisco had negotiated with them free passage for any ship going to the Gamma Quadrant. So, like, basically anybody's allowed to go through and the Prophets won't stop them. Um, but after this episode and this season, we don't really get back into the Prophets or the Gamma Quadrant too much. Like, we see a little bit of exploration, but it's, for what it becomes, the main, the main story doesn't really continue too much in this season. But we're going to still watch those episodes because they're very fun. Yeah, basically the Enterprise returns, and because of experience, uh, Cisco has decided to um, change his um, mind about leaving. He wants to stay on the space station. And everything's all right with the world, basically. So, yeah. I mean, it's still going on. We're watching the... Um, we're just watching the conversation. There's, there's just not a lot more to say about it because it's, you know, it is what it is. So, yeah, I, I really wish I knew more about what the next episode's going to be. Good news is the next episode's only forty-five minutes. I'll have to make special arrangements when we do a two-parter, so I don't have to stop in the middle of it like I did last night for this. But, um. Yeah, most of them are 45 minutes, so it'll be easier to just, you know, sit down. Lots of weird, cool stuff's happening. We're going to see. We haven't even met my favorite character yet. And when we do, I'm just going to be over the moon. I often, like, I often think to myself, if I could live in any Star Trek, I think I'd want to live in Deep Space Nine because it'd just be cool to live in the promenade and go to Quarks. Again, one of the reasons I'd love to go to the experience if we're still open.
And we're basically at this point, what we're seeing is that the promenade has been cleaned up and it looks like a bustling town, which is what it's supposed to be. Like I started with this with, it's supposed, you know, it's supposed to be the wild west town. And so we're off to the races, you know, we're just going to see where this town goes. I wonder, just last shot here, if you're watching with me, they just saw three ships arrive. I think it might be a different alien. I was just wondering if those were Bajorans. Because I said earlier I didn't know what a Bajoran ship looked like. Yeah, whatever. So there you go. That was the first episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I hope it was somewhat entertaining and informative. I think it was, but, you know, you'll tell me. And uh, I think every Monday you're going to get a new episode of this. So next episode we'll be watching episode 3, but which is listed as episode 2. Uh, so yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that, and I will see you later. Make sure you check us out on Wednesday, because like I said, this is going to become a companion to our regular episodes. Um, i trying to think. What's today? So this Wednesday, we're going, this weekend I'm recording with our device the Legion of Doom tribute episode, and we're also going to probably do a reaction podcast, not like a watch along, but a reaction to um, NXT TakeOver, which is this weekend when I'm recording. Um, so I'm not, I'm pretty sure I'm going to put up the LOD episode as our um, regular Wednesday episode and then do, maybe I'll do a bonus, like, because I want to do the reaction podcast close to the TakeOver. So maybe I'll, maybe it'll be a three episode week next week for all you guys. So. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it all works out. You'll know better than me by the time you're listening to this. Who knows? Maybe it'll already be up. But I hope you, really, I hope you enjoyed that. And I can't wait to do more of these. And um, I'll see you later.